Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, we'll be listening to PSY 352, Social Psychology with Professor Nathan Smith. I hope you listen and enjoy. So do ideas of the self vary across cultures? This is a question we talked about a little bit earlier in this lecture. Individualist cultures, as I mentioned, where the self is defined more independently, and these would be cultures many of us are familiar with if you've grown up in America, Canada, England, Australia, or Western Europe. These Western cultures are generally individualist. Collectivist cultures, self is defined more in terms of the larger group, and as I mentioned, these are Japan, China, Taiwan, other Asian countries, and also there are some parts of some countries. I think I mentioned the Amish in America are very collectivist, even though they grow up within an individualist society. And still, there's not a strict distinction between these two types of cultures. In general, you want to try to avoid painting with too broad a brush to say, oh, I'm going to meet a Japanese person, that person is going to be very collectivist. Because, as we discussed earlier, what we're trying to learn about is people groups in general, but you don't want to say everybody in any particular group is going to behave in any particular way. That's when you get into biases, and we're going to be talking about biases down the road, but um, thinking uh, too much about people in a collectivist culture as all always behaving in collectivist ways is going to get you into trouble with your biases. So, self-esteem. How well do we like ourselves? Well, if you're an American, which many of you are, you probably have very high self-esteem, and this is something that's been found consistently. When you look at who has the highest self-esteem country by country, Americans, uh, we really dominate this category. Very few people, very few countries, if any, have higher general self-esteem than Americans do. And the more you travel through the world, you may find this to ring true, as I do. A question, is self-esteem a unitary concept? Well, self-esteem does not appear to be unitary. It has different domains, it has different aspects. And it also has an affective component. Affect, for you clinical folks, something you're going to be running into a lot. And paying attention to affect, paying attention to emotionality, is going to be very important for you in the clinical setting. And certainly, self-esteem has a momentary, it has an affective component. Is higher self-esteem a good thing? This is something that used to be, uh, maybe 20 years ago, most people would have said, yeah, absolutely, high self-esteem is a good thing. Well, this, there's a common misconception that higher self-esteem results in positive social outcomes. This is not true. Uh, at least as recently as 25, 30 years ago, maybe 90% of the people you stopped on the street would say, higher self-esteem is a good thing. What we've actually learned is this is not the case. So self-esteem is often the result and not the cause of positive social behavior. So that is to say, 
high self-esteem by itself isn't a bad thing, but the idea used to be, well, if we could just increase people's self-esteem, they would have these positive social outcomes. That's the aspect that turns out not to be true. So there were many uh, experiments tried, there were many programs done to raise self-esteem, and even when that succeeded, it didn't result in the positive outcomes that people were hoping for. So this is a good example of cause and effect. Always good when you're thinking about research, thinking about outcomes, to uh, think about what is causing what, and have I got my causal arrow pointing in the wrong direction? So, one thing, uh, you might know that people who are healthy tend to have a higher income. So the wrong way to think about that will be, uh, would be, well, if I just go to the gym and eat my fruits and vegetables, get plenty of exercise, I will become healthier, and that will make me rich, because healthy people tend to have more money. So this is a case where the causal arrow is going in the wrong direction. It's not that healthy people tend to have more money, it's that people with more money tend to be healthier, and this comes from a variety of different reasons. Maybe they have the money to have fresher fruits and vegetables, more available to them. They have the money to have the time to go to the gym. Uh, they have the money to have the, um, the time to have a clean house, have, um, you know, not have lead paint in their environments, not have other pollutants in their environments. These things cost money. So, is it, the f is it that healthy people have more money or that people that have more money are healthier? We want to always make sure that we're getting our cause and our effect in the right direction. This is something I've run into in gambling research a lot. People will sometimes say things that like, people who have gambling disorder are depressed and anxious, and this is a really bad thing. It's causing all this depression and anxiety. And depression and anxiety are bad things, and gambling disorder does interact with them, but what we have found through research is that actually in a lot of cases, depression and anxiety are causing the gambling problem. So you wouldn't want to try and get a depressed person to stop gambling. You could do that, it might be good for them, but they're still depressed at the end of the day. You want to treat the gambling disorder, which for three-quarters of the folks is the symptom of the, the initial problem, which could be depression or anxiety or some other mental health disorder. So you don't want to get your cause and your effect flipped around or you won't be able to help people. So, continuing on. Excessive self-love. Fragile egos that attack when challenged. And this is something that we'll talk about a little bit further in the future. So how much do we strive to maintain our self-esteem? Well, we do this a lot. We do this uh, almost all the time at times. Perceived challenges to self-esteem often provoke efforts to maintain higher self-esteem. Uh, again, uh, there's a lot in relation to self-esteem in the self that makes me think of high school. Maybe you clinical people can help me with that. Uh, I'm not sure what to make of it myself. But I think of um, in a high school setting when someone is challenging somebody else, things can very quickly get out of control. You can go from one person standing over somebody else's desk 
looking down at them, to two people in each other's faces and pushing and shoving and what have you, in a matter of moments, very, very quickly. There's something in this particular age group, it seems, that takes these perceived challenges to self-esteem uh, and very quickly are provoked into efforts to maintain higher self-esteem. Unfortunately, in high school settings, especially with high school males, this often can, re can result in uh, verbal fights, physical fights, uh, pushing and shoving, etc. So the, the sociometer model of self-esteem, that is, the more socially included I feel, the higher my self-esteem. And you'll recall from the text that the researchers who did this work said that they really couldn't disassociate, they couldn't pull apart feeling socially included from self-esteem. It seemed like these two things were maybe two different ways of saying the same thing. The more included one felt, the higher their self-esteem. Or the higher someone's self-esteem, the more included their feeling at that time. So, uh, keep in mind as we go through that feeling included or excluded and having higher self-esteem or lower self-esteem really may be just two ways of looking at the same phenomenon. Is, is self-esteem always such a great thing? No, is the short answer. So you recall Bowmanster and Bushman talking about excessive self-love. And there are healthy levels of self-esteem versus narcissism. Narcissism is excessive self-esteem. So uh, when I think about when I think about this, I think about all of the work that was done in America through the 80s and 90s to increase the self-esteem of the populace, thinking that this would increase positive outcomes. And what we found is it didn't actually increase positive outcomes, and it may have caused more narcissism than we would have had otherwise. And this is a bad thing. For those of you who are going to work in public health, we call this unintended consequences. And this is something that happens all the time. You're intending to do something good, like increase self-esteem and have people have more positive outcomes. But unfortunately, through your efforts, you end up increasing narcissism as well as self-esteem. And that narcissism call, causes negative outcomes. So we call this unintended consequences in the public health world. And those of you going in that direction want to think about how you can avoid unintended consequences. And the best way to do it is to always test, 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 test your interventions before implementing them. So what we're going for here is optimal self-esteem that is recognizes one's own strengths and weaknesses. Optimal meaning the best. And in this case, as in many cases, it is not too high, not too low, it's that um, that sweet spot, we'll call it, in the middle that is optimal. Not too high, not narcissism, not too low, not, not loving oneself, but somewhere in that middle sweet spot. So the Christian implications for self-esteem research. The Christian view sees a mixed value in self-esteem. There are two main points here, denying the self, yet loving others as you love the self. So 
Um, obviously we need to love ourselves. We were commanded to love others as we love ourselves, the implication being that we do love ourselves. But then there are parts of humanity that are about denying yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me is about denying yourself and taking on your cross to follow Christ. So the scriptures do warn about our propensity for pride. That's very helpful. McGrath and McGrath suggest that self-worth is based on understanding Christ's redemption and from our identity as his adopted children. And this research can consider effectiveness of self-esteem programs that incorporate both regard for self and regard for others. And this is kind of a novel aspect of Christian research, not just thinking about the self and raising self-esteem, but raising self-esteem while also raising regard for others. And uh, we can talk about that more when we speak about helping behaviors. But I think it's kind of a novel point that the author makes that is particularly interesting for Christians.